I'm going to read out of the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. You're welcome to turn your Bibles there. If not, you can look at it on the screen. I'm going to start a message series this Sunday, and I want you to be here every Sunday that you can make it the next few Sundays. Invite a friend, invite a family member, invite an enemy. I want you to bring somebody because I think this is important because we're going to talk about the triple sevens. And then after each service, we're going out to gamble. No, I'm just teasing. But we actually are going to, some of you said, yeah, in the background. No, 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 teasing. But numbers are important to God. And there's a reason why God has numerical value in the scripture. God's got heavenly value, the sun, the moon, and the stars, but he's also got numerical value. You know, six is the number of man. Six is the number of sin. That's why the Antichrist, when he's presented on this earth, he'll have the number of six, six, six. That's the demonic trinity of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself. And that's important because we need to recognize the number of man. But God has a number. His number is 777. And that number is the number of completion. It's the number of fullness. And God wants us to live in the sevens, not rolling dice, none of that nonsense, but living in the sevens and being a person of completion where God completes in us a perfect work as we get ready to see him in heaven. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, here's how it happened, 16. It says, for we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. He says, we weren't faking the funk when we were talking about the power of Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Today, I want to talk to you about what God refuses to do. The greatness of God is truly measured by what he refuses to do. Father, I thank you today for your word. It is a lamp and it is a light. And let this gospel go forth and change people's hearts and lives and minds by your greatness, your majesty. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's men and women said, amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you've lost weight, I promise, and sit down. That gives you thanksgiving. More is coming. More is coming. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Pat. You really have lost a lot of weight, Pat. You really look good. You turn sideways, stick your tongue out. You look like a zipper, I promise. I think there's something so important about you being here today. I just, I'm not just saying that. We're so honored you're here, but this is a message for you. This is not a message for your neighbor. This is a message for you. God's got something for you today that's wonderful. He wants you to know how great he is. He is great. What do you think of when you hear that word majesty? Because that's not a word that we commonly use in our everyday language. The God that I'm talking about today, the God that I serve and the God that many of you serve is a majestic God. That means greatness. When you think of that word majesty, the Latin translation means greatness. It's when we talk about somebody on the earth, preferably kings and queens. We're talking about your majesty or her majesty. It means greatness, the the greatness of it. That's why when husbands, when you tell your wife, honey, you're great, what you're really saying is your majesty. 
You're saying, you're great, your majesty. And all the ladies should give me a great big amen for that. But you know what? It's cool. I, I forgive you anyway. I think there's something important about honoring things that are great. Honoring things that are great. We live in a world today that has lost the culture of honor. We honor the wrong things. And we need to learn to honor the right things. Honoring that which is great. Four Catholic mothers were having a conversation together and they were discussing the greatness of their sons. So the first Catholic mom said, my son is going to be a Monsignor. And when he enters the room, people will say, hello, Monsignor. Second mom said, well, my son's a bishop. And when he enters the room, people say, hello, your excellence. The third mom said, well, my son is a cardinal. And when he enters the room, people say, hello, your eminence. The fourth mom thought for a moment. She says, well, my son, he doesn't do all that, but he does play for Notre Dame. He's six foot eight, 380 pounds. And when he enters the room, people look up and say, oh my God. <laughs> How many of you know you can't get higher and taller than that? But the Bible testifies about the greatness of God and the majesty of God. King David said in Psalms 93 that the Lord reigns and he's robed in majesty. God's given you a, a picture of him being circled in this greatness. He's robed, he's circled in the majesty and the greatness. He also said in Psalms 145 verse 5 that I will speak of the glory and the splendor of his majesty. I like that because that's the text of the morning. The, the apostles were describing their eyewitness account of how great great Jesus really was. I think the eyewitness accounts are important. That's why when you go to the witness stand, how many of you have ever been locked up? Don't raise your hand. I'm not asking you if you've ever been on the witness stand, but if you've ever been on the witness stand, what happens is they ask you to raise your right hand and then you have to swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God with your other hand on the Bible. And you have to give an account, an eyewitness account of what you have seen and what you have done. Why is that important? Because in the Old Testament, the law of God through Moses was talking about two or three witnesses. If they were eyewitnesses, that God would bring them to the council, to bring them to the judge, if you will, and they would give an account, two or three, to bring forth clarity and bring forth honesty, that these three, two to three people would give an account of what was said and what was done. The reason was to bring legitimacy to the claim. And that's important to know because God says it spiritually. If two or three of you agree about anything you ask for, it shall be done for you by my Father, which is in heaven. He's talking about legitimacy, that people would be believers and not doubters and come to a place and be eyewitnesses in the spiritual realm of the promises of God. That's what the apostles are saying. They're saying we were eyewitnesses. They are fulfilling the law of Moses and they are fulfilling the law of Jesus that says, gather two or three together and agree about anything and what you ask for, it'll be done by my Father in heaven. So I can see these apostles. I can see the apostle Luke in the theater of my mind. He's a doctor. He's brilliant. He's very strong in his understanding of current situations. And I can see the doctor saying, I was an eyewitness. This is Luke's account of him touching the untouchable leper and he was instantly healed. 
I can hear the eyewitness account of Peter who was unstable. His name means water, unstable. He was, he was an unstable person. And I can hear his eyewitness account today in the 21st century saying, I saw him walk on the stormy seas of Galilee, the raging storm. I've been rowing for nine hours. My back was tight. I was overwhelmed by the storm. But suddenly I saw the Lord walking on the water and say, peace, be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed his voice. I was an eyewitness to that. I can hear Andrew, the great apostle. I saw him command the demon spirit to come out of that demon of demoniac of Gadara. And instantly the man that lived in chains that was out of his ever loving mind was kneeling at the feet of the Lord like a child worshiping him. I can hear the apostle James give an eyewitness account of I saw him summon Lazarus who had been dead for four days. It was so reeky and stinky in that place. I covered my nose, but I did see with my eyes and I did hear with my ears him command Lazarus come forth. If he hadn't called Lazarus by name, every dead man since the dawn of creation would have gotten out of the grave for he is the resurrection and the power. I can see Philip give the eyewitness account. I saw him feed 5,000 with one boy sack lunch. I was the one who helped collect the 12 basketfuls left over because he is a God of provision. I can hear the apostle John give an eyewitness account. I saw him spit in the hand of his, of his own hand and mix it in the dirt of the ground and mix that spittle and that dirt and touch the blind man. And instantly he received his sight. Why is that important? Because every Jewish person believed that the spittle of the firstborn of the father had supernatural power in it. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, I'm the firstborn of my father. I have supernatural power to heal and provide. I can see Thomas telling us an eyewitness account. I saw him stop a funeral procession of the widow woman who had her son laying there. And I saw that son rise from the dead again. All of them collectively tell us today, even in the 21st century, we saw him get out of the grave. We talked to him. We ate with him. He fixed this fish by the seashore of Galilee. We touched him. We saw him ascend to heaven. And today he sits by the right hand of God the Father with power and great glory. We were eyewitnesses of his greatness. What am I telling you today? I got you all fired up because I'm trying to bring hope to you today. You say, well, Joel, you're just trying to get our hopes up. Duh. Of course I am. You can't live in faith if you don't first have hope. You gotta have hope. The God that I'm talking about, friends, he's not a fable. He is, in fact, a majestic God. His greatness, the Bible says, fills the earth. He's a God of grace and a God of glory. He's a God of might and a God of majesty. He's a God of power and persistence and patience. He's the Lamb of God, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. He's the great shepherd that guides and provides. He's the great physician that heals and restores. He's the great I am of the church. That means he was and is and whoever more shall be. He's a God of hope. He's a God of comfort. He's a majestic God. And there is none like unto him, not in the heavens above the worlds or the worlds beneath. There's no God like our God. Put your hands together and give God a shout of praise if you believe that today. And here's, I think, the greatest thing about what I'm communicating today 
Our God has promise. He's majestic, which means he's great. And he's promised you, friend, that you can live life without limits that you can have a life and not have limits to the life, to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. But we can't mentally grasp the greatness of God. It's hard for us. You've got to remove out of your mind any thoughts, anything that would limit him, anything that would limit his power in any way, shape, or form. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Would you go and start that business? If failure wasn't an option, would you start that business? Would you go back to school and get your degree? Would you go to the, to the place again and get married and, and, and start over again? What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? I don't know about y'all, but I would rather attempt to do something great for God and fail at it than succeed at doing nothing. I would attempt to do something for God, fall flat on my face and say, you know what? I tried. It didn't work out, but I'm not a failure because of my, but what I've done, I'm not a failure. That doesn't define me. That just refines me to get up and try it one more time. What would you attempt to do if you knew that failure wasn't an option? Would you step out and go do it? Would you do what God's called you to do? Understand, friend, you will not possess what you will not pursue. And if you don't possess these promises of God, how can you pursue them? You have to possess on the inside of you the good things of the Lord. In other words, the foundational pillars that God is for me, he's not against me, that God loves me, he's got plans for me, he's got plans to prosper me, not to harm me, plans to give me hope, and not a bad future, but a bright future. You see, you have to possess that on the inside of you before you can pursue the good things that God would have for you. You know, this book from cover to cover, it's filled with the promises of God. And every one of these promises are yes and amen. But it's hard to launch out into the deep and keep your feet on the seashore. It's hard to live with faith, hope, and optimism if your mind is fixed on doubt, sour, depression, thoughts, and unbelief. It's hard to have dreams of God and let the purpose of God flow around you and in you if you're hanging around with old buzzard people and old chicken people and you're not soaring with the eagles. It's hard to have the promises of God but have your hand in the things of this world. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? If you're going to have the best, you've got to start walking by faith and not by sight. You can't be moved by what you see. You can't be moved by what you feel. You have to be moved by what you believe, and you have to believe in those promises of God. What would you attempt to do? You've got to start dreaming God dreams. God's dreams require action. Faith without works is what? It's dead. God has called you to do great works for him. You're not saved by works. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy. You can't work on your salvation. You can't get dressed enough, less makeup, get your skirt long enough. You can't get your flesh in line enough. You don't work yourself into salvation. You're not saved by works, but you're saved to do work. And your work is called faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's having God's dreams inside your heart. When God starts putting dreams in your heart, now it requires action. You have to put that dream to action. You want the best, God wants the best, then it requires you stepping out in faith and taking action. If you're dreaming a dream that has no action, then what you're really living in is an illusion. You say, well, I'm waiting on God. And I think God's waiting on you. 
Well, I'm waiting on God. I'm waiting for the church to have this. I'm waiting on the church to have this. And I'm waiting for have this potluck service. And I'm waiting for them to this. Maybe God's waiting on you to start something. Maybe God's waiting on you to start the dream that's in your heart. Maybe God's way, and I've got this great thing for you, but I'm waiting on you to, to explode in that dream and operate in faith and not live in an illusion and not stay around your mama all the time because mamas cheer about everything. Oh, my little biscuit eater. They're so good. They're so good. And you know what? Yeah, you are good, but get off your blessed assurance and get it done for the kingdom of God. I know that's not politically correct, but it sounded so good. Makes me want a biscuit. A little gravy. on. Well, ooh, a little jelly. I think that'd be good. But I think it's important because if you have a dream that doesn't have action to the dream, it's really an illusion because dreams become reality when you take action. The dream of the Lord's Gym City Center would have never become a reality if we as a church would not have taken action. It still would have been a dormant building for now 15 plus years and not just 12 years when we took it over. It would have been a dream without a strategy and now it's just a fantasy. And these things require action. The new season for Oasis Church, the new home that God's preparing for us, it requires action. The new apartment buildings for women and children, those things require actions. You have to learn to live by faith. God demands that we take action. Do you know your miracle always requires two parts? Remember what Jesus said to the man with the withered hand? Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Remember the man that was a paralytic? He told him, take up your bed and walk. See that miracle, it always has two dimensions, two parts, your part, and it has God's part. And your part with God's part is a potent combination for miracles to begin to happen. You know, this world that we live in is really divided, not with the Republican Party and not with the Democratic Party. You got to get that, that level of thinking down. You got to rise higher than that silly level of thinking. Your opportunity is driven in two parts, dreamers and doers. And dreams require action. It requires action. And if we're doing it without faith, we're living in a dimension of self-service. In other words, if what we're accomplishing is done without faith in God and God showing up, it's really self-service. But when you take faith and you put it in action, there's nothing that you cannot do. I hate it when political pundits say, well, the government needs to get involved and the government needs to do this and the government needs to take over that. And I often yell at the TV like some of you, the government that gives you everything could take away everything and nothing's impossible to them that believe. You, with God's help and the anointing of God, there's nothing that you cannot do. And I think that's very important because God's presence has no limits. God's presence, I'm going to say it again for the religious people in the back. God's presence has no limits. I'll never forget many years ago when some spiritual space cadet came to me after one of the services we had. And now I have guards. Protect me, O Lord. But he came to me after the service and said, you grieve the Holy Spirit tonight. I said, well, how is that, sir? He says, because you transitioned the service. I said, you really think God's that small? That we can transition the service and grieve the Holy Spirit? You really have put God in such a box that we can just grieve the Spirit of God that he's going to depart from us because we transition a God service where we give God the entire service? How petty. 
How minuscule? How, how is it that we can get so focused narrowly to put God in a box? God's presence, friends, has no limits. You can cut yourself off. You can lock the door. You can disconnect your iPhone or your little Samsung or your flip phone if you want to go old school. You can disconnect it. You can disconnect from life. You can unplug your television, but you can't escape from God. You'll never escape from God. You know, that's funny because we live in a society now. It's a social society, but everybody does everything they can not to talk to anybody anymore. So now we've got social media. So we really don't want to talk to you anymore. We, we type stuff or we send pictures and they're really not our real pictures anymore. Now they're pictures of you back in 72. Your profile picture. That's not you, Jack. I'm sorry. That's not you. That was you like, I'm not even going to go there. I don't want to go carnal, but you get my point. Now you don't even have to go in a grocery store. You can call Walmart. They'll bring it out to your car. Amen, brother. I like that. Let's use that, Jennifer. I don't want to go there anymore. I think we have done everything in society to really connect, but yet disconnect. We want connection. Oh, we want connection. But really, if we're honest, we want disconnection because we want to do everything from a screen. We want to do everything because it's really our relationship with God in the 21st century. It's America as relationship with God in the 21st century. We want to connect, but we're going to do it online. We're going to watch the services via internet. No, there's something about being in the house of God. There's something about the tangible presence of God. You'll never get it on a screen, Jack. You'll never get the anointing as it spits out of the microphone watching it on your little screen. Even though it's in HD and I look horrible in HD, I understand. I got a face for radio. I get it. But I think we can disconnect, but we can never escape God. King David wrote in Psalms 139, this is wonderful passage of scripture. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the highest heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. That'll jack your theology up, won't it? If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the morning and settle on the other side of the earth, you are there. The point is you cannot escape God. Are you afraid of the dark? God is there. David writes in Psalms 139 verse 11, nor can darkness, which hides me from human sight, shield me from God's gaze. The fact is God knows every moment before you make that moment. God knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you speak them. Listen to David again. Oh Lord, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, that's my movements. You pursue me, my thoughts from a far. That's my mind. You're familiar with my ways. That would be my habits and my desires. Then he says, before a word's out of my tongue, you know it completely. God knows. Let me tell you something. All of you may try to hide your heart from your husband, from your wife, from the pastor, from your coworker. You may try to hide it from this person or that person, but you're never going to hide from God. He knows who you are. He knows what you are. He knows your thoughts and all. I think that's so important because we live in a society where we want to put our best foot forward for people who don't even know us. 
I see people all the time, they're kinder to people they don't even know because they want to make a good impression. And then people they live with think they're a monster. Yo, you don't really know them. You should see them at home. But why is it we should do the opposite? We should treat those who are close to us better than we treat those who are far. And I'm not saying disrespect those from afar by any means, but I'm saying the ones that are closest to us, they're the, really the ones that should speak so highly of us and honorable to us because we know them and they know us. See, that's what God wants us to realize when it comes to him. He knows all about you. He loved you when you were at your worst. He loved you when you were in the bar last night, son. He loved you when you were smoking weed the other day. Some of you did it in the parking lot. He loved you when you were at your worst. He loved you when you were out in the club thinking you can dance and you can't dance. Let me just tell you, you were loved before you ever had God on your mind. He knew you. He loved you. He's got great plans for you. So as we close our time, as Pat and the worship team, please come. I want to tell you that the majesty of God is really displayed on what God refuses to do. I'm going to say that again. The majesty of God is really displayed when, when God starts to refuse to do things. God's greatness is measured by what he cannot do. You know, that sounds funny, doesn't it? It sounds like an oxymoron. An oxymoron is a contradiction in terms that's like casual Christianity. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a casual Christian. I hear people often, I even had somebody recently, Joey, I'm just, I'm casual in my worship. I'm casual in my walk with God. And I'm thinking, you don't have a walk with God. That's like talking about a heavenly devil. There's no such thing as a heavenly devil. There's no such thing, talk to a Jewish person. There's no such thing as a kosher dog. You're not supposed to touch the swine. There's no such thing as a casual Christian. I'm, I'm just casual. That's why I got my latte and I, I got my little hymnals. I got my little worship. And then I come and go when I want because I'm casual in my Christianity. There's no such thing as a casual Christian. If your walk with Christ is not a fire shut up in your bones, you don't have one. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And never forget that. I think that's important. I think that's so important. Or, you know what another oxymoron is, especially when you have young kids, family vacation. Take the family or take a vacation. You're not doing both. You're taking a family outing, family excursion, family work time. It's not a family vacation. I'm sorry. I'm just bursting some of your bubbles. Like, like oh my God, I'm, I'm devastated. No, it's true. And you know what God refuses to do? I'm going to leave you with one, but we're going to talk about seven of them. And I'm going to talk the rest of them next Sunday. I'm going to leave you with one. God cannot be given a problem he cannot solve. Come on, let it sink in. He refuses to be given a problem that he cannot solve. Matthew 19, verse 26, God said unto them, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I think about that a lot. 
because I studied that Bible from cover to cover. And when Moses and the children of Israel were coming to the mighty Red Sea, that looked like an insurmountable problem. In front of them was this massive body of water. Behind them were clouds of dirt from Pharaoh's mighty army that was coming to snuff them out. In front of them was a problem. Behind them was a problem. I've been to that sea many times. And to the left was a problem. There were mountains. To the right, there was another problem. There were other mountains. There was nowhere to go. Problem in the front. Problem in the back. They can't go left. They can't go right. Pharaoh's chariots were thundering across the desert. Those razor sharp daggers and swords were glistening in the brilliant Egyptian sun. And the Jews knew that they were going to be drowned or slaughtered. They were hopeless. And that instantly became helpless. When you become helpless, you turn to hopelessness. And they look to the right, they look to the left, they look to the front, they look to the back. And that was a problem. That has a problem. And I want you to know they did what every good church member does. They went straight to the pastor and said, you brought us out here to die. That's what you all sound like when you come with problems. You may have a masculine voice, pastor. You know what I think of you? Bring in your problems. And they come to Moses and said, you brought us out here to die. I can't wait to meet Moses in heaven because Moses does something so great. Moses says, there's a God in heaven. He's a majestic God. This is recorded in your Bible. He's an almighty God. He said, stand still and see the greatness and majesty of God. And he stretched out his rod and that Red Sea, those waters departed and the children of Israel walked over dry ground. Pharaoh and his army, they were drowned. The most powerful army on the face of the earth was suddenly reduced to fish food because the God that I'm talking about, he's a majestic God. There's not a problem he cannot be given that he cannot solve. What does that sound that I hear today? I hear your problem coming to a mighty God. And I see your problem being wiped away like a summer's threshing floor. I see your problem being rolled away like a Red Sea. I see the God of the universe coming to your aid and your side and your side. And I see that problem getting overwhelmed with the greatness of God. I see that disease leaving your body. I see that child coming back home again. I see that poverty issue being broken by the prosperity of God. See, God cannot be given a problem that he cannot solve. And I say to you, all of us today, are you facing a red sea of impossibility? Are you surrounded on every side? Do you know you don't have a place to turn? Are you choking on your own fear today? Does it seem like the path in front of you is full of danger and the path behind you, the enemy's closing in and, he, and he's powerful? I want you to remember the God that I'm talking about and the God that you serve and worship. He is a majestic God. He's a great God. He's a deliverer. He's a God that cannot fail. Can I tell you, he still holds the same 
seven seas in the palms of his hands. The nations of this earth are but a drop in the bucket unto him. He puts kings up and he puts kings down. He said, call on me and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things you know not. No good thing he withholds for those that diligently seek him. The problem you have, the problem your family's going through, it's no match for the creator of the universe. All you need to do is give that problem over to God.